The Old Testament reading for today is Genesis 2, 24 through 25. The New Testament reading is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 8, and also verse 13. So Genesis 2, 24, 1 Corinthians 13. We are uh, reading again Genesis 2, 24 through 25. I know it feels very repetitive and redundant. Uh, in fact, it is very repetitive. Uh, but this is to remind us that we are still in a sermon series through the book of Genesis, but we are here uh, taking some time to focus in on the subject of marriage. Genesis two twenty four. hear now God's most holy word. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. Now let us go to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Here is that most famous passage on the subject of love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Here the apostle says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things endures all things. Love never ends. Look down now to verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord help us now as uh, the word of God is preached and applied. Uh, Brothers and sisters, uh, this is now the fourth sermon in this series on the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And up to this point, we have defined marriage as a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman that has been established under God and before the community. There is a definition of what marriage is. We have labored to understand what marriage is. Also, a few things have been said about entering into marriage. One, to prepare for marriage, a person should pursue holiness and maturity in Christ in all that they think, say, and do. Two, they should know what they are looking for in a future spouse while preparing for marriage. And for the Christian, uh, this means ultimately that they should be looking for another Christian, and that is one who is truly a Christian and not a Christian in name only. And three, a person should approach dating relationships and engagement in a godly way. And so here is how to prepare for marriage, uh, some simple observations or advice given for preparing for the marriage relationship. But today, we turn our attention to the subject of having a successful marriage. How might we have a a successful marriage in Christ Jesus? As I have said before, our objective is not merely to survive in marriage, but to thrive. Uh, Do we accomplish something great if we remain faithful to the marriage vows to the end of our life? Yes, we accomplish something great. It is important that we survive in the marriage relationship, but more than that, we must seek to thrive in Christ Jesus. Our aim should be to build marriages that thrive so that God be glorified through them. 
What, therefore, are the keys to building a successful marriage? What are the crucial ingredients for a God-honoring and good marriage? I have three points today. One, a husband and wife must learn to love one another in Christ Jesus. Two, a husband and wife must learn to extend grace to one another in Christ Jesus. And three, a husband and wife must be long-suffering. And I want to consider these points one at a time Uh, Firstly, a husband and wife must learn to love one another in Christ Jesus. Christ-like love is a key ingredient to a good and God-honoring marriage. I, I am aware, as I say these words, that this might sound very simplistic to some. I want you to imagine a couple coming to their pastor saying, Our marriage is in shambles. What do we need to do to make it strong? And the pastor says, Well, the two of you really need to love one another. I suppose the couple might look back at the pastor and say, are you kidding me? That's what you have for me. This is your advice. Isn't that obvious? And put this way, the answer does seem rather simplistic. But I want to suggest to you that though the point be simple, it is far from simplistic. Uh, There is, in fact, substance to this answer. There is power in it. Truly, the key to a healthy marriage is love. If a husband and wife hope to have a strong and healthy marriage to the glory of God, they must learn to love one another in Christ Jesus, and I want you to pay careful attention to what I am saying. I want you to notice the word learn in this answer. A husband and wife must learn to love one another, is what I am saying. And what is implied by the word learn? What is implied by that little word there in this answer that is given? Is it not implied that love is something that we must choose to do? Love is something that we must choose to do. Many assume, I fear, that love is primarily an emotional experience. And I, and I do not deny that there are genuine feelings that come along with sincere love. Do we feel love for others? Yes, of course we do. We have what are called affections for those that we love. But we are terribly mistaken when we believe that love is, above all, an emotion. No, in fact, love, according to the Scriptures is an action. It is something that we choose to do. When I say that if a husband and wife hope to have a strong and healthy marriage, they must learn to love one another, this is what I mean. The man and the woman must learn to love. They must learn to treat one another lovingly. They must learn to love one another in thought, in word, and in deed. When I say that we must learn to love, it is also implied that love is something that does not come natural to us but as a way of life that must be developed within us. When I say that we must learn to love, I am saying that love, true love, really does not come natural to us, but it's, a, it's something that must be acquired. Uh, it's something that must be developed within us, that is, the ability to love truly. And here is where the theological liberals and progressives get all bent out of shape. I think many in our culture imagine that man is basically good from birth and that man knows how to love naturally. Uh, That is the predominant view within our culture. But this theory is disproven by the Word of God and also by a careful observation of the world around us. Uh, I I will not deny it. Men and women do naturally have the ability to feel feelings that we often associate with love. I would agree with that. From a young age, we know what it is to feel attraction to another, to be infatuated with another, to desire and even lust after another. But this is not love. In fact, many of these emotions that we feel have more to do with our own desire for gratification than desiring the good of another. 
We are not talking about feelings that we often associate with being in love, but action, selfless action done for the good of another human being. This, I am saying, does not come natural to us given our sinful and selfish propensities, but is something that we must learn to do. It is something that must be acquired. Love is something that we must learn to do in Christ Jesus. It is a way of life that must be cultivated and developed. The Word of God is clear that we do not naturally love aright. An observation of the world around us also proves it. Tell me, when you look upon the world, do you see a world that is uh, infused with love? Is that what you see? I actually see human beings failing terribly in this regard. I I see that people do not know how to love by nature. And the Word of God does also say so directly. Do we have affections by nature? Do we have affections? And by that I mean do we have feelings of fondness towards other people and things naturally? The answer to this is yes, we, we do. We have affections. We naturally set the affections of our heart on other people and things. This is something that we do constantly. What is the problem, though? The problem is that our affections are bent out of shape by the sin which is ours by birth. We, by nature, set our affections on things that we should not have affection for. We have affections for things that are evil. Or sometimes we set our affections on things that are good, but in an inordinate way. By that I mean... Certain persons or things might be worthy of our affection, but not to such a high degree. Do you understand that we, by nature, do have affections, but they are bent out of shape? We set our affections, oftentimes, on the wrong things. We have affections for things that we should not have affections for. And even when we do happen to set our affections on good things, we tend to do so in an inordinate way. We put those things in a place that they should not have in our lives. We make gods of them, is what I am saying. For example, parents do this sort of thing all of the time with their children. Uh, Parents, is it right for you to have affections for your children? Of course it is. It's right that you have affection towards them. It's right that you love them, but it's so easy for parents to, to make those children little gods and to have their whole life revolve around them and to give them a place in their life that they should not have, a place that only God Himself should have. Uh, This is what I mean when I say that sometimes our affections are set on the right things, but in an inordinate way. There is a kind of affection that is appropriate for God, and there is a kind of affection that is appropriate for creaturely things even our own children, for example. The same can be said for every other thing in this world. The same can be said of food and drink. Is it good for you to have affection for food and drink? I think it is. It's a gift from God, isn't it? It's okay to love food and to love drink and to give glory to God from it. But when it becomes the main thing, when it becomes our obsession, when it becomes a little God for us, all of a sudden that affection for a good thing, it is now inordinate. It is out of place. What about the beauty of nature? What about affection for learning, or physical fitness, or rest, or even your spouse? It is right to have a degree of affection for these things, but it's possible for uh, this affection to be all jumbled up and out of place and disproportionate to where these things become little gods to us. These are all good things that are worthy of our affections, but only to a degree and within their proper place. And so let us be sure that our affections are set on the right things, and let us also be sure that they are orderly. in in their proper place is what I mean. I might also ask, do we have the capacity to love by nature? Do we have the capacity to love by nature? 
Do we have the ability to make choices and to live for other people and things? Do, do we have the capacity for that? The answer again is yes. Of course we have the capacity to love. Uh, we being by nature free creatures and having the ability to act upon choice are certainly able to love. We have the capacity to feel affections towards pe- other people and things. This has already been addressed. And we also have the ability to devote ourselves to those people and things. Uh, some people love football, for example. Uh, They feel affection for the sport, and they also devote themselves to it. They spend their time thinking about it. They are religious in their observation of it. They invest their money into it. They love the sport, and their way of life proves it, you see. So they have the capacity to love. But again, what is the problem? The problem is that we sometimes set our love upon the wrong things, We love that which is not good and lovely, and at other times, our love is, again, inordinate. We love things that are good and lovely, but in the wrong way. Uh, The Word of God testifies to our distorted love and affections, and our observation of the world around us also confirms it. And so why all of this talk about our bent-out-of-shape love and affections? Why am I going on and on about this? It is really all to say this, that we must learn to love. Uh, We do not naturally love well. Uh, We have affections, we have love, but oftentimes they are placed on the wrong things and they are inordinate. So do not be surprised, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, that a husband and wife must learn to love one another in Christ Jesus. Do not assume that you naturally know how to love well. In fact, the Word of God and the world around us does prove that that we struggle in this badly. Uh, We do not naturally love well, or we do not have affections for the right things always and in the right way. Uh, In the marriage relationship, do not be surprised when you need to work hard to learn to love your spouse. There in the marriage relationship, two people become one, and there in that covenant bond, they are to learn to love one another. May I suggest to you that one of the best places to learn to love well is the marriage relationship. And sometimes it is difficult for us to learn to love well. Uh, Notice also the word love in this answer that is given. How can we cultivate a healthy and God-honoring marriage? A husband and wife must learn to love one another in Christ Jesus. Notice the word love. Uh, A husband and wife must learn to love one another. Here it simply needs to be demonstrated that love is in fact an action or a way of life. That's what I want to focus upon right now. Love is in fact an action or a way of life. Uh, Yes, love and affections are closely related. And yes, it is true, a husband and wife should feel affection for one another, no doubt about that. But may I suggest to you that when the Scriptures command us to love, they are not commanding us to feel affection, but to take action. Love is a way of life. Uh, The 1 Corinthians 13 passage that was read at the beginning of the sermon It's perhaps the best known passage on the subject of love. And I want to read again verses 4 through 7 to you. And as I do, I'm going to ask you to ask yourself the question, is love an emotion, according to the Scriptures, or is love a way of life, primarily, an action? Here, the Apostle defines love. Love is patient, he says. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own. It is not irritable or resentful, but does 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I think it is clear that when the Apostle defines love, he defines it not as an emotion, not as an affection, but as an action, something that we choose to do. A husband and wife must learn to love one another. They must must learn to treat one another in a particular way. They must learn to have a certain quality about their way of life. I, I remember this. I don't... I don't know why this comes to my mind. Every time I read this passage, when I was growing up, my parents had this, this painting in the restroom, right? Uh, and it was in calligraphy, I think, this passage, the 1 Corinthians 13 passage, the love passage. And I don't know how old I was, but it must have been at about that age where you start to think about things like love. Uh, usually that happens to boys later than girls, I think, uh, stereotypically. Uh, but I remember reading that uh, this list, you know, from 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. And because I had been so influenced by the world's definition of love, that love is an emotion, love is something that we fall into, I remember thinking to myself, well, I will know when I am in love with a person when I begin to experience these things. Are you, are you following me? Love is patient, love is kind. When I begin to experience these things, or I guess in my naive and immature understanding of things, when I begin to naturally do these things, I don't know, uh, when, this, when this here comes upon me, then I will know that I have fallen in love with someone. But is that the point of the passage? No, the point of the passage is this. You, Christian, are to love. It is a command. You are to love. You are to love your neighbor You are to love your enemy, even. You are to love your spouse, of course. Uh, The neighbor that is closest to you, I guess, right? And what do I mean when I say, you are to love? And when I command you to do so, the apostle says, well, this is what I mean. You must be patient to that person, with that person. You must be kind, never rude, never harsh. Now I am giving my paraphrase of it, right? Uh, It is an exhortation, a command from the apostle to live this way of life. This is not something that comes over you. This is not something that you fall into, but this is a way of life that you are to live. You are to love one another, uh, the scriptures say. And here is what love is. It is an action or way of life. Uh, When Jesus in John 13, 34 commands us saying, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. He does not mean feel fondness for one another, but instead that we are to treat one another in a loving way. In fact, after saying love one another, Jesus says in that same passage, Just as I have loved you, You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so here is the point of it. Jesus' disciples are to treat one another in the same way that he has treated them. And it is this way of life that the world will take notice of. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It should be obvious to all. The world cannot see our affections, can they? You cannot see the affections of our heart. This is not Christ saying, feel affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ. But they can see our love when it is truly love, that is, love demonstrated in action. How will the world know that we are disciples of Christ? Well, When they look upon the community of faith, when they look upon the church, when they look upon the disciples of Christ, and they see the disciples of Christ treating one another in a certain way being patient with one another, being kind towards one another, gentle, 
towards one another, you see. That's something that the world can observe, and that is something that the world will take notice of because the world does not do this. The world does not live in this way. The world cannot see our affections, but they can see our love, for love is action. Remember that love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And what I'm saying is if if a husband and wife hope to have a healthy and God-honoring marriage, they must learn to treat one another in this way, to truly love one another, love being an action. Love is not something we fall into or out of. It is something that we choose to do. That is the biblical teaching concerning love. And notice also the little phrase in this answer, in Christ Jesus. A husband and wife must learn to love one another in Christ Jesus. And by this I mean three things. First of all, it is Christ Jesus who has demonstrated to us what true love is. Do you want to know what perfect love looks like? Where do we look to see an example of that? To your own parents, to your neighbor, to your pastor even? No. We, we are to look to Christ. What does true love look like? We, we look to Christ and we see that he has, he, he has modeled true love for us. He is true love incarnate, is he not? God is love and Christ is God incarnate. There we have a perfect example of what true love looks like. We are to therefore imitate him and his way of life. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another, he says to his disciples. If we are to love well, we must love in Christ Jesus or as he has loved too. It is Christ Jesus who enables us to love through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. This is what I mean when I say that a husband and wife must learn to love one another in Christ Jesus. By nature, we do not love as we ought to love. We love the wrong things. Oftentimes, we love ourselves supremely. I think that is at the heart of it, really. Here is where our love goes wrong. We love ourselves supremely. And we even... Uh, When we do love the right things, we often love them wrongly. This is our condition apart from Christ while in sin. But in Christ, we are renewed by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ, our heart of stone is turned to flesh. In Christ, our hearts that are by nature dead to God are made alive to God. Christ enables us to love through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, by nature, because of our sin, our love and our affections are all jumbled up and out of place. They are inordinate, you see. Uh, This is one of the effects that the fall has had upon us. Do we have affections? Yes. Do we have the capacity to love? Yes. But it's bent out of shape. Christ renews, though, what was lost in us at Adam's fall. And so that is what I mean, that we must learn to love one another in Christ Jesus. Three, it is Christ Jesus who teaches us to love more and more through the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. Although you have been made alive by Christ, if you have faith in Him, that does not mean that your struggle with sin is over. Indeed, there are many sinful corruptions that remain within you and I to war against the Spirit's work within us. The Spirit has written God's law on our hearts and is now training us to keep God's law from the heart. And what is the summary of God's moral law, that law that has been written upon our hearts by the power of regeneration? What is the summary of it? To love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love 
our neighbor as ourselves. This is the thing that Christ is constantly teaching us to do, to love aright, to love God supremely and to love neighbor as self, not to be selfish but selfless. Uh, This is the work of sanctification that Christ is accomplishing within us. You, You might be thinking to yourself, well, this sermon, it doesn't even really have to be oriented towards marriage at all, does it? This sermon could just as easily be preached to the church without even the marriage relationship being mentioned once, you see. And that's kind of the point that I want you to see, brothers and sisters. Uh, To have a a healthy marriage, a God-honoring, a God-glorifying marriage, it does not mean that we have to do something terribly unusual in our marriage relationship. We simply need to be Christians towards one another. Do you get this? We need to treat our spouse in the same way that we have been treated to called to treat one another in, in Christ Jesus. We simply need to mature in Christ. We need to love one another in Christ Jesus. This is what we need to learn to do. Secondly, a husband and wife must extend grace to one another in Christ Jesus. Grace is a key ingredient in good and God-honoring marriages. Um, you have just heard me say that husbands and wives must learn to love one another. The question before us now is, what are we to do when our spouse is not loving us as they should? What do we do then when we look across the room at our spouse and we say, they are not loving us as they should? Instead of being patient, in fact, they are always impatient. Instead of being kind, I find that they're often rude to me. Instead of dying to self, they always insist upon their own way. Uh, What if they are irritable and resentful, etc., etc.? On and on we could go. What is a Christian spouse to do then? The answer is that we must show mercy and grace to one another in our marriage relationships. Uh, The world operates according to the works principle. This is how the world works. The world operates according to the works principle. Uh, The law that governs the relationships of the world is this. I will treat you as you deserve. I will be kind to you once you are kind to me. Do you want me to be kind to you? Then you must be kind to me. Be rude to me and I will respond in like manner or maybe I will just withdraw. I'll just shut you out and begin to ignore you. I will show you love and respect once you love and respect me. This is the law that the world lives by. It is this law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, This is the law that the world lives by. But is this how God has dealt with us in Christ Jesus? Is it? Has He dealt with us on the basis of our works? Does He make us earn His love? Uh, Thankfully not, for, for He knows that we are incapable of doing so. Instead, it is by grace that we have been saved. It is by grace through faith and by virtue of the selfless and sacrificial work of Christ that God has brought us into a right relationship with Himself. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is 1 John 4, 9 that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why am I citing this passage here? Only to demonstrate that this is how God has loved us. He did not wait for us to love Him, for we could not. He did not wait for us to become lovely, but He took the initiative and loved us, and it cost Him something. He sent His Son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And what I want you to remember, brothers and sisters, is that our marriages are designed to be a picture of God's love 
for His people in Christ Jesus. This is what our marriages are to be a picture of. God's love for His people in Christ Jesus. God has been gracious to us. He has been kind to us. Though we were His enemies, He loved us first. And what I am saying is that husbands and wives are to love one another in this way. They are to show grace to one another. Though the other might not be in that moment lovely, you're to love them anyways. You're to show grace to them. You're to show mercy to them. And I do wish that it were so that husbands and wives would love one another perfectly, uh, being always patient and kind, never arrogant or rude. I, I wish that it were so, but you know that the most godly among us still struggle with sin. You know that to be the case. The very best husbands and wives will still sin against each other. What then? That is the question. What then? And the answer is that we are to extend mercy and grace. Remember that the Scriptures tell us that we are to love our enemies. If we are willing to show kindness to our enemies, why not our own spouse when they are being rude to us? You know you, you know that it's true. Sometimes your spouse is an enemy to you. There's conflict. Maybe they have wronged you badly. What are we to do then? Well, you're to act like a Christian. That is what we are to do. And you're to love your enemy, even in that moment, even if your enemy happens to be the one you're married to. You're to love them. You're to do good to them. You're to extend grace and mercy to them in that moment. I, I want you to hear the words of Christ in Matthew 5.38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, in other words, here is the way of life that I am calling you to live. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This, at first, might seem like a very strange text to cite in a sermon on marriage. But it does apply, doesn't it? It does apply. By no means, by the way, am I encouraging a husband or wife to remain in a truly abusive situation. Don't misread this. But the principle here is that as Christians, we must not be governed by the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth principle. Instead, when we are struck, metaphorically speaking, we should not strike back. But instead, we should turn the other cheek. If this is how we are to respond to those who persecute us in the world, how much more should we be willing to extend grace and mercy to our spouse when they are failing to love us as they ought to love us? You know this is true, husbands and wives out there. You know that this is a root problem. First of all, one or the both of you are failing to love one another as you should. But then secondly, when you fail, you know that, that, that a root problem in your marriage is that you are not extending grace to one another. Your spouse strikes you, metaphorically speaking, verbally perhaps. And what do you do? You do not act like a Christian. You act like one of the world. And you strike them back, metaphorically speaking. You lash out. And so here is the culture that, it has, uh, that, that has taken hold within your household. It is a worldly culture. It is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth culture. It is the works principle that dominates. This is not the way we have learned to live in Christ Jesus. Christ tells His disciples that we are to turn the other cheek. And that even applies to the marriage relationship, the relationship between husbands and wives. I have seen this time and time again. A marriage is struggling. 
harshness, rudeness, selfishness dominate the husband and wife are encouraged and instructed to love one another. They are encouraged to be kind and patient, to be tender, to be thoughtful. All of these things need to be encouraged. But the couple struggles so badly to change. Uh, Why? It is not because they do not want to change. Actually, I see oftentimes that they do want to change. But they struggle to change in part because the works principle governs the marriage. Mercy and grace is lacking entirely. So here they are in Christ. Here they are struggling in their marriage. And here they want to change. They do. They're tired of this this marriage relationship being so bad. But the trouble is is that they go home and they look at one another and they say, when are you going to straighten up? And the other one looks back and says, when are you going to straighten up? And the other one looks back and says, I'm going to straighten up when you straighten up. I'm going to begin to love and respect and honor you when you begin to love and respect and honor me. They begin to try, but one of them inevitably slips up. Old habits die hard. Sanctification is, is not easy work, is it, friends? It is not. And the trouble is that inevitably one will slip up and speak in a rude tone or reply in a harsh manner or say that critical thing once again. Grow irritable because they're tired or hungry. It's funny how we grow irritable. We are weak creatures, aren't we? You know? And then in the moment they do, the other spouse, because there is no grace in the heart, but the works principle is still prevailing, says, well, see, I knew you would never change. And then that cycle begins again. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But this is not the way we are to live in Christ Jesus. I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. You guys are thinking, what's going on here? He never has us turn to other passages in the middle of a sermon. But I want you to put your eyes on this passage. 1 Peter 3, Peter is speaking directly to wives, starting in verse 1. And I, want, I want you to recognize the principle that we have just talked about. It is here in this passage, applied to the marriage relationship. First, Peter speaks to the wives, and he says, Likewise, remember that word likewise, because we're going to come back to it in a little bit. Likewise, likewise wives, be subject to your own husbands. Be subject to your own husbands. This is a way of saying, uh, be in submission to them, honor them, take the role that God has called you to to take. We will address roles in the marriage relationship next week, Lord willing. Um, But likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, show them honor. But check this out here. So that even if some do not obey the word, what are we talking about here? We are not talking about a godly and mature Christian man, but a husband who is struggling to obey the word of God, so that if some do not obey the word, they may be one. How is the husband to be one by the wife? Without a word, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do you see the principle that we have been talking about here applied to the marriage relationship? How is a wife to respond to a husband who is failing to obey the word of God? She is to be subject to him. She is to respond by laying down her life for him. She is to be sure that her conduct is respectful and pure. And it will be in this way that her husband is to be one without a word I do not need to tell you how different this way is from the way of the world. This is completely opposite from the way of the world. The worldly wife will seek to change her husband, not without a word, but with many words. Wouldn't you agree? This is how a worldly wife will seek to change her husband. She will give him a piece of her mind, right? And if there is a without a word principle here, it is not... 
a gentle and respectful and kind disposition, but one of coldness, you know, right? But this is not the way we are to live in Christ Jesus. Uh, the wife is to be sure that her conduct is, is respectful and pure. The worldly wife seeks to change her husband, not without a word, but with many words. The Christian wife is to win her husband without a word through her respectful and pure conduct. She is to adorn herself, as the passage goes on, not externally with the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold and jewelry, jewelry and, and, and the clothing she wears, but she, instead she is to adorn herself with the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. By the way, quiet there does not mean that wives are never to say a word. Uh, Quiet here means a spirit that is at peace, a spirit that is tranquil, uh, like a glassy sea as opposed to a tumultuous sea. Uh, That is what it means for the spirit to be quiet, which in God's sight is very precious. There is so much that can be said about this text. It's not the sermon text for today, so I'll refrain. But, But do you see the principle here? Wives, how are you to respond to a husband that is struggling, either a Christian husband that is struggling or a non-Christian husband? How are you to respond? You're to do your part. You're to be sure that your conduct is respectful and pure. You're to do this not before him, but before God. And in this way, God may use you to change him. This is how he is going to be won if God wills to win him. God is going to use your conduct uh, to win uh, the husband or to mature him in Christ Jesus. I think this is so powerful. And then Peter remarks that this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. They weren't primarily concerned with their external appearance, but with their inner beauty. By submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Wow. Uh, this is a powerful text. Uh, it, this is, in fact, my very favorite passage to share with Christian, a Christian wife whose husband is ungodly or immature in Christ. I love that Peter mentions Sarah and Abraham. How did Sarah respond to Abraham? How did she adorn herself as his wife? Uh, we are told that she showed honor to Abraham, even calling him Lord. She treated him with respect. And I would imagine that some would respond to this observation by saying, yeah, but Sarah was married to Abraham. She had it good, right? Wasn't Abraham the father of the faith? Wasn't he a a godly man? So here I am married to this guy. Sarah was married to Abraham. It's different. And what I would say to you, sister, if this is what is in your mind, is have you read the story of Abraham? Have you read it? Have you read it? Have you read of all of his shortcomings? Twice he abandoned Sarah to a king's harem. Do you remember that? That's not good. That is not godly. He also foolishly took Sarah's servant as a second wife to himself. It was Sarah's advice, but he foolishly did it. Uh, Abraham was far from perfect. Did he have sincere faith? Yes. But the narrative, and we will come to it someday in the book of Genesis, uh, the narrative is not making this point. Look at how good and godly Abraham was. He earned God's favor. He's the one who made this work of God. No, that's not at all the story. Look at how bad his shortcomings were, and yet by the grace of God, he was saved. By the grace of God, he was used by God to accomplish great things. He was far from perfect. And what did Sarah do? She still showed him honor. That's why Peter mentions her. I should here say that the, the thing that has been said time and time again in the series already, the Bible does permit divorce. 
I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea here. Two grounds are given, adultery and abandonment. In these instances, divorce is permitted. We'll come to that. So there are limitations to what I'm saying here, but those issues aside, we must extend grace to one another. We must learn to show honor, even if the other is acting less than honorably. Notice that Peter says something very similar to the husband in verse 7 of the same passage. Likewise, notice that word again, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. What does that mean? I think it has to do with the fact that the woman is called to take a place of submission. Uh, that, that is a scary thing to do, right? To take a place of submission underneath a sinful man, right? In, in that sense, she is the weaker vessel. And, and that is why, by the way, the, wom- the women are encouraged to not fear anything that is frightening at the end of uh, verse 6 there. They're to trust in God. So, so what are you to do, husband? Your, your wife has been called to submit to you and to show honor to you. Are you to exploit that? Are you to exploit that as a Christian man? Never. But instead, you are to show honor to your wives. You're to live with them in an understanding way as they take this position of the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, in Christ you are on equal footing. Don't forget it. So that your prayers may not be hindered. So in essence, the husband is actually threatened by the higher power. Here you are the head of the wife in the marriage relationship. There's a kind of threat here saying if you are going to exploit her position of weakness, her, her position of submission, then God is going to punish you. Your, your prayers are going to be hindered. What, what is the principle that, Peter's, that ties Peter's instructions to the wife and his instructions to the husbands together? What is the undergirding principle? Uh, what is the principle that stands behind the words likewise at the beginning of verse 1 and 7? Uh, did you notice, and surely you did because I pointed it out, uh, the word likewise? It is the principle of showing honor even to those who mistreat you. Instead of the law of an eye for an eye, it is the law of love your enemies that is being put forth here in this text. In fact, this theme runs from 1 Peter 2.13 all the way through the end of chapter 3. Look at 1 Peter 2.13 with me really quickly. 1 Peter 2.13. Again, Peter is writing to Christians and he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Be subject to those who are in authority over you, even if they're a wreck, right? Even if they are not obeying the word of God, this is how you are to live, Christian. Not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but you're to extend grace and you're to show honor even to those who are acting less than honorably. Now look at 2.18. Servants are addressed. Slaves in the first century. How are they to act? This is not condoning slavery, but this is saying you you are a slave, you are a servant in this household. Here is how you're to behave yourself in that context. Be subject to your masters with all respect. Be subject to them. Look at what the text says. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This is to be the Christian way. We are to honor those who are in authority over us, even if they are not good and gentle but unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Notice the reason that Peter gives for this kind of conduct. Here is why the Christian is called to live this way. Verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example 
so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to who? To God, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What, what is the point here? The, the point running throughout this entire passage is, here is why you are called to live this way of life. Not eye for an eye and a tooth for a true tooth, but you are to show love and grace and mercy to those who mistreat you. Why? Because of Christ. This is how He lived. This is how He provided for our salvation. He is an example and we are to follow Him. The likewise of verses 1 and 7 of 1 Peter 3 has reference to this gracious way of life. Husbands and wives are not to live according to the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth principle, but instead they are to extend grace to one another. They are to show honor to one another even if the other is acting less than honorably. And so tell me, brothers and sisters... Does the works principle dominate your marriage? Or is your marriage infused with grace? Uh, Wives, I can tell you from personal experience that the Spirit of God convicts me as a husband the most when my wife responds to my rudeness or my irritability with kindness and respect. I can tell you what, if she responds to me with rudeness and disrespect, when I'm rude and disrespectful, it has little impact upon me. Actually, it's just like fuel to the fire. It just perpetuates my blindness. It just hardens my already hard and sinful heart. But when she responds to me with kindness, when I am rude, that has power to it. That gets my attention. Maybe not right away, but it gets my attention eventually. The Spirit of God uses that way of life, the love, the grace, the mercy that she is showing to me. The Spirit of God uses that to convict me powerfully. And so I would exhort you wives to to live in this way before your husbands, and husbands also live in this way towards your wives. Extend grace and mercy. Thirdly, and very briefly, If a husband and wife hope to have a successful and God-honoring marriage, they must be long-suffering in Christ Jesus. Uh, Patience is a key ingredient in good and God-honoring marriages. And by patience and long-suffering, I am not just talking about patience in the moment, but but long-term patience. That is, that you're willing to stick it out, that you're willing to see that God is doing a work in your marriage, uh, though to you, from your limited vantage point, it might seem like slow going. Truth be told, many lose hope in their marriages way too soon. But I want you to remember what was said in the middle of that passage on love found in 1 Corinthians 13. Remember the phrase, love bears all things, love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If love is genuine and sincere, it must be the kind of love that bears up under difficulty and that endures, that is in it for the long haul. Brothers and sisters, we need to endure in marriage We need to persist with hope in our marriages. What should we do as we persevere in the marriage relationship? Well, we should be sure to address issues as they arise, but respectfully and in love. We will talk more about this at another time. I am not at all proposing that the Scriptures are teaching us just to be quiet and not to address issues. Indeed, we have to address issues in the marriage relationship. But there is a way to do that, respectfully and in love. So many lack this skill, though, I have found. There is conflict, then it has to be Heated conflict. Why? Why can it not be 
loving and gentle and respectful. Conflict. Conflict is not necessarily bad. In fact, it is wrong to avoid it when it needs to be had, but we need to go about it in a Christ-like manner. We should be gracious and kind to one another while we pursue sanctification in Christ Jesus. We should focus on ourselves, asking the question, am I walking holy and humbly before God? Far too often our focus is on the other person and their shortcomings. Look at yourself. Take the log out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of your spouse's eye. And of course, while we persist and while we are patient and long-suffering, we should pray. We should never cease to pray, asking that the Lord would indeed do the work that He needs to do within our spouse after He does that same work in our own hearts. And so tell me, friend, do you have uh, the love of Christ? Do you know the love of Christ? Do you have faith in Christ? Do you understand what Christ has done for you, His self-sacrificing love? Do you know it? Do you know Christ? And, and do you know how to love as He has loved us? Are you able to extend that same kind of love to those around you, especially to your spouse? Are you merciful and gracious to your spouse? Are you long-suffering? Are you persisting in the marriage relationship, hoping always in God, trusting that He is able to do a great work within you and the one that you love? Let us bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, do a work within our marriages, uh, we pray. For those not married who hope to marry in the future, I pray that you prepare them for it, Lord. Even now, may they learn to love others, truly, according to your word. Lord, help us to die to self. Help us to love you supremely. Help us to love our neighbor as ourself. May we do this in every respect, in the community, within the church, within our own household, Lord. May we truly learn to love one another. We trust, Father, that as uh, you help us in this way to build healthy marriages, that indeed you will be glorified. May our marriages be a true reflection of the love that you have shown to us in Christ Jesus. These things we pray in his name and all of God's people say, Amen.